Following directions. Following directions. I'm an only child, which also makes me a firstborn, which means that rules are everything to me. You're supposed to do things the way that the designer intended you to do them. In fact, when my kids are left for, with me making them dinner, which is thankfully few and far between, I pull out that blue box with Kraft macaroni and cheese inside it, right? And that's pretty much cooking 101. That's cooking for dummies. But I'm the guy that on the back, that's why there are directions on the back of the box. Because I want to know how much butter to put in, how much milk to put in, how long to boil the noodles. And so I'm following the steps on the Kraft macaroni and cheese bit by bit, making sure that I'm doing every single thing according to the way that it was intended or designed. My wife, on the other hand, is a much better cook and much better baker than I am. And, and so she can go off script with a recipe. She can throw things in that, uh, that weren't included in the original recipe, or she can kind of eyeball measurements and things and comes out tasting just fine. Or take my daughter, who's a second born, so rules just don't exist in her world. And she likes to play with Legos, and she has these Lego figurines that are these girls, and their hair comes off. Well, the hair is supposed to be on top of the, the, the figurine. That's the way it was created to work. She takes the hair off. And so I'll look at her and say, what are you doing? Why are all of your Lego girls bald? I want them that way. Okay, fine. It makes my skin crawl, but, but go for it. That's fine. If, if you want to ruin the way that they're supposed to be played with, go for it. That's fine. There's, there's times in our lives where it's okay for us to go off script. There's times that we can kind of just loosely adhere to the directions or adhere to the, the designer's intentions. But when it comes to our obedience to the Lord, when it comes to following after him, there's never a time in our lives where it's okay for us to go off script. When it comes to following the Lord, to being submissive and obedient to him, it's really essentially an all or nothing proposition. There's no, well, Lord, I was almost obedient to you today. I almost did that the way that you wanted me to. This idea of fully submitting to the Lord, to his sovereignty, to his plan is a lesson that Israel needed to learn in our passage before us this morning. We're going to find out what happens when we choose not to trust the Lord's design, when we choose not to trust his plan, when we choose not to seek out what his will is for our lives. We're going to look at this passage and try to figure out how can we guard against committing the same error, the same sin that Israel committed. How can we know for sure that we are on track with God's design for our lives? Grab your Bibles, your tablets, your device, make your way over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you all recall from last time we were together, 1 Samuel chapter 7 is a great chapter of Israel's repentance. Israel's finally, after 20 years of, of just abject idolatry, they're finally broken and, and they come to Samuel and they say, okay, Samuel, what should we do? And you remember Samuel leads them into repentance and says, if you're, if you're returning with all of your heart, Here's what that's going to look like. Do these things. And Israel says, okay, we're all in. We're going to do them. And then the Philistines come in and camp against Israel at Mitzpah. And they go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we're not going to trust in the ark. We're not going to trust in our idols. We want you to go to the Lord and entreat the Lord for us so that we can have victory over the Philistines. And Samuel does that. And the Lord sends the Philistines into mass confusion. And they flee before Israel. And so chapter 7 ends on a, on a high point. Everything's going well. Israel's doing well. But then we come to chapter 8 and we read in the first three verses, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, 
the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The sons of Eli committed some of the same sins. And so here you have chapter 8 open after this high point with chapter 7, and now it fast forwards, and Samuel's an old man, and he's installed his sons to be judges in his place. But there's a problem in that his sons are not walking after the Lord. They're turning aside from the Lord, and they're seeking out dishonest gain and perverting justice. And so the elders of Israel come to Samuel, and you can imagine the, the history of the judges is, is very recent in their mind of this cycle of going up and down and up and down and up and down. And even most recently of just this 20 years where the ark was sent away from all of Israel and they were worshiping idols. And they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, this is not working. Something has to be done. And they propose a solution in verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. They're very blunt, aren't they? Samuel, you're an old man and your sons are screw-ups. Something needs to be done about this. And so their conclusion was this. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We have to understand where Israel was at this point in time. To the west, they had the Philistines. The Philistines were pursuing them, were launching raids against them, were campaigning against them. And the Philistines were led by a king. To the east, they had the Ammonites, another nation that was hostile to Israel. And the Ammonites were led by a king. And so as Israel looked to the Philistines and they looked to the Ammonites and they looked to some of the other nations, they noticed that all of them had a king. And so Israel said, we want a king as well. What this was is it was a grasp at security. It was a plan that the elders had come up with together in their own minds without regard for the sovereignty of God, as we'll see here in a minute. And in verse 6, Samuel says that this was a matter that displeased him. That word displeased in the ESV doesn't really do the, the Hebrew justice here. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll remember that's the account of David's sin with Bathsheba. After everything is done and Uriah the Hittite is killed and David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, it says in the text there that this all displeased the Lord. Same word. And so what this was it, was, it was grievous, it was offensive, it was wicked, it was evil in the sight of Samuel for the elders of Israel to come and to request a king. But we have to ask why, and at first we have to say honestly that it wasn't the request for a king that was so evil or so wicked. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 15, this is Moses, way back in the Old Testament law. God is speaking through Moses, and he says this, when you come to the land that your Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Does that sound familiar? That's what Israel's just done with Samuel. God says through Moses, when you do that, when you request a king like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. See, the problem with Israel's request, what made it a matter that displeased Samuel, that was wicked and evil in his sight, was not the request itself. It was the request without consideration for God's provision and God's timing. 
See, that was the whole point of Deuteronomy 17. In verse 15, again, he says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That wasn't Israel's agenda. The elders were all about, we want a king and we want a king now. See, the people were tired of not having a visible figurehead. They were tired of having wicked judges leading the nation. They were tired of going into battle without their king leading the charge. And so they went to Samuel and rather than waiting on the Lord's timing and plan for the nation, they take matters into their own hands and in the process, they delivered to God a very clear message. Look at verse seven. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Why? For they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. This is why it was a matter that displeased Samuel. This is why this request was wicked and evil and grievous. And you say, well, did Israel have a concept of God as king over them? Or is this something that we're simply reading back into their history? Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, right after all of Pharaoh's army did the dead man's float in the, the, the Dead Sea there, the Red, Red Sea, um, Moses then crosses over and he launches into song. And at the end of the song in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, he says to the Lord, you will reign forever and ever. You will reign forever and ever. That word reign, obviously in our language, has everything to do with royalty and kingship. And it did it as well in Israel and in the Hebrew language. And so Israel certainly understood the concept of God as king. Israel's problem was they turned to trust their own wisdom, their own intelligence, and their own logic above the Lord's plan and timing. And in so doing, they fell prey to idolizing their own wisdom. And we can fall prey to the same temptation. And so to guard against this point one tonight or this morning, we have to always subject our wisdom to God's sovereignty. We have to always subject our wisdom, our plans, our desires, our longings to God's sovereignty, to God's control, to God's plan, his will. Again, this was not a sin of ignorance for Israel. Look back just one chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. In the midst of this high point, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. What is Samuel doing there? He's setting up a monument. He's setting up a visible reminder of how God had gone out and fought the battles for Israel. How God had time after time after time provided everything that Israel needed. How God had been Israel's security that they were longing for in the form of a human king now over and over and over again. And so just one chapter before this, Samuel sets up a monument, a visible reminder to remind the people, God is our help. God is our strength. But now the people are so short-sighted that they felt like, okay, this, this idea of, of having God, a, a God who we can't see, a God who we can't touch, who we can't feel as our king, as our leader, as our military authority, it's not enough anymore. They thought they knew better than God. Their wisdom and the wisdom of the nations around them that they longed to emulate was superior to the wisdom of the Lord. And so they go to Samuel and they request a king. Dale Ralph Davis says this, Our proposals can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and yet utterly godless. Our proposals can be completely reasonable, 
clearly logical, obviously plausible, and yet utterly godless. And that's where Israel had found themselves. Was their request reasonable? Yeah, absolutely it was. Something had to be done about Samuel's son. Samuel was near death. His sons were wicked men. There had to be a solution brought to the table for a a good form of leadership for the nation. And so you can see how as the elders gathered around together, it was reasonable for them to put forward this idea of, hey, you know what? Why don't we have a king? A king can lead us. Was their proposal logical? Yeah, from a worldly standpoint, absolutely it was. After all, we just talked about it. They looked around at the other nations, at the Philistines, at the Ammonites, at the other nations around them. All of them had kings and their kings were leading them well. They were winning military victories. Some of them winning military victories against Israel themselves. So the logic was there. Yes, kings work. Was it plausible? Certainly it was plausible. There's 12 tribes in Israel. Could there have been a man qualified to serve as king amongst the 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah, absolutely. You can hear the elders. I'm sure we can find somebody. Maybe they're even casting out names amongst themselves as they're forming this proposal to go to Samuel with. But yet, Israel's proposal was utterly godless because it lacked any consideration of God's sovereign plan for them. They didn't go to Samuel and say, hey Samuel, will you go before the Lord and find out if now would be a good time for us to have a king? Would you seek the Lord's will for this? Would you see if this is a wise decision for us? They didn't do that. They went to Samuel and they said, Samuel, it's time for us to have a king. We want a king and we want a king now. They were informing, not requesting. So we have to ask, what are the areas of our lives where we've been guilty of this? Where have we made a grab for security or acted on an intense longing an intense desire that we feel apart from considering God's plan for our lives. How about with our careers? Is there a a next rung of the professional ladder that you're going after so hard and yet you haven't stopped to consider, okay, Lord, is this your will for my life? Is there a promotion that you're seeking that you haven't brought before the Lord, praying, Lord, if this is your will, I want it. If it's not your will, I don't want it anywhere near me. How about a move? Well, we're going to move because it's, it's easier to live over here. It's more affordable to live over here. We can buy a house over here. We can have land over here. Our kids can go to better schools over here. The grass is greener over here. And yet you rush through that headlong without ever stopping to consider, God, is this your will for our family? How about a major purchase? A vehicle, a house, whatever. Sending your kids to college, helping them think through that process. Is Is it God's will for you to go here? Relationships. I mean, there's so many different areas that we can consider, that we can think about where we let our wisdom, our intelligence, our logic guide us to where our proposals are reasonable and logical and plausible, but because we haven't taken them to the Lord to subject our plans to his sovereignty, to his will, our proposals are utterly and absolutely godless, which makes them flat out wrong. And so we have to always subject our wisdom to God's sovereignty. But you'll notice as we continue in the text, God grants Samuel permission. Even in spite of this, God grants Samuel permission to give in to Israel's demand for a king but not without first providing a warning. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 8. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So God's looking at Samuel saying, hey, Samuel, how's it feel? Verse 9, now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That word warn there in the Hebrew, is, it's legal language. It's language that's warning upon entering a contract with somebody. This is the fine print that Samuel's about to roll out for Israel here. You want a king? Make sure you read the fine print before you enter into this. Verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to, to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's a pretty stern, pretty sobering warning. What's the word that's repeated six times in that warning? Take. A king is going to establish a standing military, Israel, so he's going to come after your sons. He's going to take your sons. A king's going to have an administration to staff. So he's going to come after your other sons. He's going to come after your daughters, and he's going to take them to serve in his kitchens and, and to be his cooks and his bakers and his perfumers. You know what? A king's going to need property, Israel, because a king has to have prestige. And so He's going to come after your property and take your property from you. And a king's going to need possessions. He's going to need flocks to, again, show how powerful he is. So he's going to come and take your flocks. And a king's going to need labor to work all that land and to take care of all those flocks. So he's going to come after your servants, your female and your male servants. And finally, Israel, you know what? The king's going to effectively, effectively render you slaves. When's the last time a king rendered Israel slaves at, at this point in time in history? Pharaoh? The Exodus? Did you notice the parallel there in verse 18? From Israel's time in the Exodus? And yet there's a, a very important contrast there. Verse 18, in that day you will cry out because of your king. That's what Israel was doing in Egypt. They were crying out for deliverance. God heard them and went to Moses and said, Moses, you're gonna go free my people. But this time, the Lord will not answer you in that day. Why? Because Israel, you're rejecting God as your leader and replacing him with this king. Israel's response, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Josephus was an ancient Jewish historian, and he comments on this interaction this way. The quote's going to be up on the screen. It's a little bit lengthy. You can follow along. If you want this quote, let me know afterwards. I'll get it to you. But it says this, but the multitude was still so foolish as to be deaf to these predictions of what would befall them, and too peevish 
to suffer or allow a determination which they had injudiciously once made to be taken out of their mind. For they could not be turned from their purpose. Nor did they regard the words of Samuel, but preemptorily insisted on their resolution and desired him to ordain them a king immediately and not to trouble himself with fears of what would happen after. For that it was necessary that they should have with them one to fight their battles and to avenge them of their enemies and that it was in no way absurd when their neighbors were under kingly government that they should have the same form of government also. Josephus nails it when he says they could not be turned from their purpose. See, when we're confronted by the warnings of the Lord, we have to be ready to be, to be willing to respond as necessary. When we find that our desires, our longings, our plans, even though they're, they're reasonable and logical and plausible, are out of step with the Lord's will for our life, we must point number two this morning, We must be willing to adjust course when our plans aren't God's plans. We must be willing to adjust course when our plans aren't God's plans. Israel ignored Samuel's warning, and wouldn't you know it, just three kings into their grand plan, they end up exactly where Samuel told them they would. You've got Saul, you've got David, you've got Solomon. Things are are going okay in two out of those three reigns. But then you come to Solomon's death and a man named Rehoboam, his son, takes the throne until the kingdom splits. And when he takes the throne, some men come to Rehoboam and they say this in 1 Kings 12, 4. Your father made our yoke heavy. Does that sound like the language of slavery? Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Israel's crying out for deliverance. Does God respond? No. In fact, they go into the period of the divided monarchy, which is not a high point in Israel's history. And eventually that leads them into exile. See, this warning from Samuel was Israel's opportunity to repent from their foolish request. It was their opportunity to turn from their wickedness, to turn from their evil, to say, my wisdom is, is inferior to the Lord's wisdom. I was wrong. We were wrong in, in making this request, Samuel. And treat the Lord for us and find out what his will really is for us right now. This was their opportunity to repent, but instead they remained bullheaded and foolhearted, refusing to adjust their course to obey God's plan for them. Remember, obedience to the Lord is not like a recipe. We can't go off script. It's all or nothing. When we find ourselves out of step with the, with the Lord, with his plan, with his will for our lives, we have to do everything possible to get in step. We just heard a sermon on that this last weekend from the life of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, and Pastor Mike made this point, he didn't go away from the, from the Lord saying, okay, great, how much of my wealth can I hold on to? How much of my sinfulness can I still hold on to? He went away from the Lord and said, I want to do everything I possibly can to be walking obediently to God. So I'm going to get rid of half of my possessions and the other half of it that I have left. I'm going to restore fourfold to everyone that I've wronged. He understood that obedience to the Lord is an all or nothing proposition. Israel here is confronted and they're confronted with their disobedience. And rather than submitting to the Lord and saying, no, we are all in and obeying you, they say, no, we're, we're all in on our own wisdom. We're all in on our own lust for a king. And so we're going to continue to, 
to rush headlong into our foolish decision. Samuel, give us a king. You know, we don't have a divinely ordained prophet to correct us, but we do have something Israel didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, don't we? How many Israelites at this time had the Holy Spirit indwelling them the way you and I do this morning? None. We have the scriptures to direct us, to guide us, to confront us, to warn us. How many of the Israelites were carrying a copy of the Torah in their back pocket? None. You may be here this morning going, well, I don't have a Bible. Do you have a phone? If you do, open up the app store, type in Bible. There you go, you've got a Bible. We have pastors and teachers that we sit under their teaching. We have one another. That's a big part of men's Bible study is what happens after this time, after the preaching. When you guys go off in your small groups and, and you get into one another's lives, you get into each other's kitchens and, and you find out what's going on and, and you open up with one another and you're vulnerable with one another and you're sharing prayer requests, at least I hope you are with one another and you're forming accountability relationships so that you have brothers in Christ that'll come alongside you when you're not obeying the Lord that'll bring these warnings before you and call you to repent so that you have an opportunity to do what Israel didn't do. And so the question is, do you hold your plans loosely enough that you're willing to let them go if they're out of line with God's will for your life? Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Are you mindful of the second half of that verse? Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, it's a familiar passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. See, Israel's problem was they were leaning fully on their own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge the Lord and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Again, there's Israel. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We have a, a thing that we talk about at our church a lot, Adipat, right? Any time, any place, what, Anything. Can you live an out-of-path life and be unwilling to adjust your course when you're out of line with God's will for your life? No. Can you live an out-of-path life with a tight-fisted grip on your plans and your desires and your goals? No. Because I'm sure all of you have lived plenty long enough now to understand that there's going to be a point in time in your life where God's going to say, hey, that plan that you're holding on to so tightly, I want it because it's not my plan for you. Are you going to let go? If you have a plan or aim in life that you're unwilling to listen to counsel on, you're unwilling to adjust course on, the only call on you this morning is to repent. Y'all, I hope that as you are surrounded by brothers in Christ at these tables that you sit in, in your small groups, other men in the church, that you have men that you're seeking counsel on, on what's going on in your life. We've talked a lot about making sure that our plans are in line with God's will for our lives. Our plans are subject to his sovereignty. We may say, well, how do we do that? I think there's, there's two primary ways. Number one is prayer. If you have pursuits in your life that you haven't brought before the Lord in prayer right now, you're not subjecting your wisdom, your plans, your intelligence, your goals to the sovereignty of God. And it may be that some of you are nervous to subject some of your plans, some of your goals to the Lord in prayer because you're afraid of what the answer might be. But if you're not praying, Lord, if this is not your will, I want you to shut every single door that's, that's there. 
Or if you're not praying, God, if this is your will, make it absolutely clear to me. Start doing that. Start today. So prayer is, is number one in that. But number two, the, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon says this. He says there's, a, there's wisdom in an abundance of counselors. There's wisdom in an abundance of counselors. And you all have that at your table right now this morning. Be sharing with one another what your plans are, what your goals are. Open up with one another and say, hey, I, I, I feel like this is God's will in my life, but I want you to check me on that. And if you have one, two, three, four brothers come alongside you and say, you know what, man, I don't know that this is, I don't know that what you're pursuing right now is really a pursuit that God would be pleased with. That's probably a pretty clear voice from the Lord saying, hey, it's, it's time to jump ship on that one. Or you may have brothers come alongside you and say, man, this is great. I absolutely see God's leading in your life in this. And you have confirmation to continue to walk forward in that. Lean into one another on this. Don't be like Israel. Don't hold on so white-knuckled to your own wisdom, your own intelligence, your own pride that you rush headlong into error and mistake rather than submitting to the Lord and to his wisdom. Israel went off script when it came to following the Lord. Yeah, the Lord had provided the opportunity, the possibility for a king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, but it was going to be according to his provision and his timing. Israel said, well, well, we'll adhere to your letting us have a king, but it's going to be according to our plan, our timing, our will. Israel drifted from the Lord's leadership and replaced his leadership with their own leadership. And so the question this morning is, there's, is there something in your life you know is outside of God's will for you, an area in which you need to adjust your course on? If so, do it this morning. Take that time with your, your small groups that you're going to break into here in a moment and, and open up to them. Talk to them about that. We need to be willing to always subject our wisdom to God's sovereignty through prayer and through seeking counsel from others. And we need to be willing to adjust course when we find that our plans are not God's plans for our lives. What's amazing as we finish this morning is even though Israel's plan ran afoul of God's timing and God's provision for them. God still used Israel's stubbornness in his overall plan, didn't he? Because Israel demands a king and God provides a king and the first king is a dud, as we'll find out. But then the second king is King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with King David where he says, David, you will never lack a king on your throne. And we know from the book of Daniel that there's a kingdom coming, the fifth kingdom that's going to shatter all the other kingdoms before it, a kingdom that will be without end. And when we go to the book of Revelation, we see that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who came as an infant, is going to come back as a conquering and mighty and powerful king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so you see God's sovereign plan was not thwarted by the sinfulness of Israel. He was still working. He was still unfolding his plan for redemption, unfolding his plan for salvation. But for us, let's make sure that we're walking in step with his plan and not walking outside of his plan. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you did work even through this request to ultimately bring King David to the throne. And from David's lineage, you sent Christ Jesus, who came initially as a king that 
nobody expected, that nobody looked at and saw as a king, that nobody looked at and saw as a Messiah, and yet he was the Savior of the world. What an amazing gift he was. And we know that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to come back in a way that he didn't when he first came. He's going to come back in glory. And he's going to come back for judgment. And at that point, it'll be too late to repent. At that point, it'll be too late to turn from our sin and trust him as our Savior. And so if we haven't done that, Lord, may we do that now. Father, as we, as men, try to lead our families, try to live in a world and a culture that promotes this idea that we need to, to exercise our power and authority and might and, and rush headlong after what our goals are, our plans are, go after that next promotion, make that next move, buy that bigger house. Lord, let us not take a step without considering whether it's in your plan and your will for us. Give us the humility to do that, Father. Lord, we're thankful for your word. Pray that it would be impactful to us as we go throughout the rest of our week. For your glory, Lord, transform us more and more into the image of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.